Welcome to the Final Choice Podcast, a series created to help people get more informed about assisted dying and the End of Life Choice Act. I'm journalist and author of the Final Choice book, Carolise Trays. In my book, I interviewed more than 20 experts from across New Zealand and the globe, along with a number of those with disabilities and terminal illnesses. Through this podcast series, I'll take you on some of the journey in exploring if assisted dying is the answer to end-of-life suffering. The series includes excerpts of interviews from the Final Choice book, read by broadcaster Trudy Nelson. Welcome to episode 6, Suffering and Palliative Care, with excerpts from Professor Roderick McLeod. Death. It's one of those words no one likes. It's an unfortunate thing that every one of us has to face at some point, but most of us still want to avoid it. It's a trigger word. It's become a bit of a mystery to many of us. As a society, we really have pushed the dying process into the hands of healthcare professionals and the care of the dead into the hands of funeral homes. It hasn't always been that way, and I think that's possibly one of the reasons why we really struggle to discuss the End of Life Choice Act and assisted dying while keeping calm. We've lost the familiarity with it and the understanding of what to expect, what does normal dying look like, and why do so many of us have memories of loved ones suffering? What is the end of life suffering and how common is it and what is being done about it? These are all big questions, and I think many of us thrust the hope of the answer onto assisted dying. But, like COVID-19, in a weird and wonderful way, has made many of us stop and rethink our lives, this binding referendum has the potential to do the same. For me, I found many answers and the fear of the unknown was largely dissipated after interviewing an honoured member of the New Zealand Order of Merit who has worked around the world researching, teaching and advising medical professionals on end-of-life care. He's currently an honoured professor at the University of Sydney Northern Clinical School and an honorary academic in palliative care at the University of Auckland, as well as a hospice advisor. Professor Roderick McLeod. Chapter 8, Professor Roderick McLeod. Rod says palliative care is effective, but its main restrictions are around people having limited access and not enough funding. Palliative care is not perfect, we have to own that, but the investment has been so limited. There are only a small number of palliative care specialists in this country, and in all our big hospitals in New Zealand today, a third of people in them will be dead within a year. Why aren't there small armies of palliative care doctors, nurses and counsellors helping people to adjust to huge change? Rod says introducing assisted dying without improving end-of-life care is the wrong way around. In New Zealand, 50% of investment in palliative care comes from the government, but the rest is from the community. It sounds good, but imagine if someone said to you they would pay for half of your intensive care in a hospital, but you have to fundraise the rest. There would be an outcry. So what is palliative care exactly? I know it involves caring for someone dying, and hospice specialises in it, but to be exact, the Ministry of Health states it involves supporting and helping a person to live as comfortably and fully as possible. 
It's for someone with a life-limiting illness that cannot be cured and may at some time result in the person dying. It's provided in the community, hospices and hospitals, and can be provided by all healthcare professionals, supported by specialist services. It's about life and living and making the most of life, not filling people up with drugs and floating them off, Rod says. He explains a palliative care specialist has as much training as any other medical specialist. You do five or six years as a med student, another two or three post-registration, then if you decide you want to be a specialist in palliative medicine, you do another three years. There's a widespread lack of palliative specialists, but what is far worse is the lack of basic training on all doctors receiving palliative care. But what is far worse is the lack of basic training all doctors receive in palliative care. That's despite the fact a newly minted doctor in New Zealand will care for 40 people and their families dying in their first year alone. Medical students spend 12 weeks learning about the beginning of life and must observe babies being delivered, but they only receive one lecture and a day in hospice for the end-of-life training. It's not surprising people are frightened about death. Even doctors are. But he says giving someone control over the timing of death is not the answer. The solution to people in fear? Education. I think fear of death is real. Most people only experience what it's like from TV or movies, and there it is rarely portrayed as being gentle and kind. Palliative care provides a preparation for people so they understand what is going to happen. At the end of life, we know what's going to happen and what the process is. There's specific things that happen in every person, and as a specialist, we can actually see them happening. For example, near the end, you get more tired. It's the way of the body shutting down and getting ready. Your breathing might change. You might spend more time sleeping, but wake feeling refreshed. Another change we see is you start worrying less about the world, less about what's going on in New Zealand. Your world shrinks. Your sense of preservation means you focus only on those closest to you. Then you end up focusing on yourself. I think that can be distressing for families as they feel cut out. It's most often the families that get most worried at this stage. The last sense to shut down is hearing. I wish I had Rod around when my granddad was dying. I was in hospital with granddad after he had a stroke a couple of years ago. He was in a coma for the last few days of his life. I had very little knowledge of what was happening or why. Thankfully, there weren't signs of any major distress from him, but probably the most difficult part was understanding what calls doctors and family were making around his care and medical intervention. In the end, he died peacefully one night in his sleep at his rest home. Understanding the signs of dying would have helped me know what was going on and what to expect. People often say they are fearful of being on their own when they die of pain or some sort of distress. All those things can be remedied, says Rod. You won't abandon them as a carer. You can manage pain. It's not going to be so hard that you say, let's end it now. Rod's solution to people in suffering and indignity? Care. The concept of suffering is a difficult one and can mean a vast variety of things, he says. It's entirely subjective and at times surprising what people suffer from. One woman I treated had a very serious joint disease, so every time her limbs moved, you could hear the joints crushing. She had treatment, but developed bone cancer. I asked her if she was suffering. She said yes. So I asked if she could tell me about it. She said her son went out sailing three years ago and never came back. Her physical suffering was nothing compared to the loss of her son. So to say something like assisted dying will relieve suffering is an impossible and immeasurable goal, Rod says. 
it's also difficult to distinguish between a suffering that is ongoing and one that comes and goes. What might seem unbearable at one point no longer does at another point. It's often the fear of suffering, not the suffering itself, which is the trigger that promotes people to seek assisted dying, Rod says. If we inquire, explore, and talk about it, you would find that some of that 6% might find relief. Nobody can tell you that they can take suffering away, but that doesn't mean to say the remedy is to kill them. All the people I've met near the end of their life have taught me something. They've taught me that people on the whole want to live life and value it. The choice of assisted dying will have an impact on everyone in society. Rod says such big decisions shouldn't be made with so little knowledge. And a person choosing life or death shouldn't hinge their decision on an inaccurate measurement of prognosis. There's a lot of science involved in prognostification, but really it is still an art. We know from years of practice that doctors are not good at it, they make mistakes. One of my patients I cared for as a palliative care doctor was a guy who was having enormous doses of morphine regularly. He was diagnosed with a nasty malignant tumour in his bones. I thought he looked well for someone so sick. We talked and agreed to reduce the amount of painkillers. We whittled it down over time until he wasn't taking any. He said, they told me I was dying, that's why I was taking medication. So we decided to get another scan to see how far the illness had progressed. To our surprise and astonishment, he had no disease at all. Here was a man referred to hospice because he was dying with widespread metastatic disease, but there had been a mistake. He was absolutely stunned and lived on for years. I've seen a few people in my career who have been diagnosed with malignancy who haven't had it, so much so that I thought I should get a t-shirt printed that says, I survived hospice. Most doctors have stories like that. It's a tiny percentage, but it happens. While Rod won't have to perform euthanasia himself, he says it directly impacts on people he cares for. It's about society and how we value people who aren't well. We are saying to some people, your life isn't worth living. I've never met anyone in my career and thought, you're better off dead. Yes, there's been desperately sick people and those who are hugely sad and anxious, but that's not an excuse for ending their life rather an opportunity to find out how, as a group of professionals and society, we can help them. So many of us have seen suffering in its various forms firsthand with the passing of loved ones. I've heard a lot of difficult stories from Kiwis across the country who have found it hard to walk alongside the dying process. Many had questions or misunderstanding of what was going on. I have experienced the same thing. But what I realised is that much of what we struggle with is tinted with our own grief of losing someone so precious to us, of hearing the voice of the dying person in their darkest moments of struggle and us not knowing what to do with it. It's hard not to project these moments straight onto the question we're being asked around the End of Life Choice Act, but we have to find a way to stop and take note. For many stories of suffering, this will not be the answer we hope for, I hope we don't vote just to appease our conscience without seriously considering if this is the best solution and if it is indeed safe for others. Despite the simplicity of what we're being asked at voting time, it doesn't reflect the complexity or implications of this law. That's why we have to get informed and vote wisely. 
in the next episode we will look at international evidence by considering other jurisdictions across the world which have introduced similar laws with help from researcher Jane Silloway-Smith. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it and tell a friend about it? Purchase a copy of The Final Choice book from your local bookstore or online at thefinalchoice.nz where an ebook version is also available. 